Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 376th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is a very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. This morning, our lead story is whether coding professionals are sufficiently trained and competent to interpret clinical terms and concepts from medical records. It's a contentious topic, and this one reported last year. Well, in my opinion, it's not about the credentials, but it's about the knowledge of the clinical validator that matters. Excellent point, Erica. We have two reports on this topic. Deb Detton, who first reported the subject last year, she's going to be joined by Annie Ewan, who also reported on the issue last August. Also on today's broadcast, we'll hear from Diane Iverson. Diane was among the first to report on social determinants of health for ICD-10 Monitor. That's right. Diane's going to be reporting on some new developments on the social determinants of health. And, of course, you have a talk back segment this morning on the pitfalls of voice recognition, right? Yes. I'm going to go over issues and give some suggestions as to how to fix them. Very good. We have much news to report. And we'll begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University inviting you to sign up for a free three-day trial to the ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcast Series. Click the tab above or visit the ICD-10 Monitor Bookstore. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And Astria Health, which operates three hospitals and multiple health clinics in eastern Washington state, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in May of this year. Astria claimed the collection issues with their revenue cycle management company caused a cash flow issue forcing it into bankruptcy. The company had turned over management of the revenue cycle to an outside company. Astria claims large amounts of unprocessed accounts receivable resulted in their bankruptcy. If you're a regular listener, you know that I feel management can't relinquish control of the revenue cycle. It's like Ford turning over all the manufacturing of engines for their cars to another company. Let's talk about some key factors you need to know in healthcare as you manage your revenue cycle, whether it's your own staff or an outside company. First is the number of days cash on hand. This is the number of days you can pay the expenses of your company if all income ceased. It's computed by taking the amount of operating cash and dividing it by cash base expenses per day. And as an example of the computation, let's take a fictitious provider that has a million dollars in cash. Their operating expenses are $10 million. Their non-cash expenses like depreciation are $500,000. So their annual operating cash expenses are $9,500,000. Over the course of a year, this means that they're spending $26,027 per day or that they can operate for 38 days if all revenue ceases. Next uh, thing that you would would want to look at would be the clean claim rate. Many people confuse the clean claim rate with the denials rate. The clean claim rate is the ratio of claims that are submitted with no manual intervention to the total number of claims. Multiple touching of claims, particularly manual changes, slow down the processing of claims and cost money. Next is the denials rate. This is the ratio of claims denied by a payer to total claims submitted to the payer. It's critical to look at denial rates by payer and perform root cause analysis. Whether you're using your own revenue cycle staff or an outside company, 
Management must understand the root causes of denials for each payer. Next is discharge and not final build. These are like hidden accounts. These accounts that have not that are not hitting your accounts receivable. There are claims that have not been billed, usually because of encoding. Growing DNFB may mean that there are billing backlogs that can starve providers of cash and lead to bankruptcy. As a final comment from working in this field for many years, you're usually married, in a sense, to your software company. Companies like Aria usually face a dilemma. Once your software company knows that there has been a debacle and that you'll most likely replace them, they become less and less responsive to your request for information. Providers need to make sure that they have more than one way of getting data that they need in order to support the revenue cycle and also to fix issues as they come along before they become major issues that force the entity into bankruptcy. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday, July 9th, 2019, and on this day in history, nearly 100,000 demonstrators march on to Washington, D.C. for the Equal Rights Amendment, and, of course, the rest is history. Today, you're listening to the 376th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Staying on top of pressing coding and documentation issues can be challenging, especially as new ICD-10 codes are released. No wonder you struggle to keep up to date. And there's the need for recertification, plus the stress of obtaining continuing education credits. Now, with a subscription from ICD-10 Monitor, you have premium content and continuing education credits from AHIMA and AAPC. Subscribe to the new ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast series. It's premium content, accessible for in-house and remote staff anywhere, anytime. Now, for a low annual rate, you can subscribe to more than 40 curated education webcasts. And for a limited time, get access to a free three-day trial of the new ICD-10 Monitor webcast subscription. To activate your free three-day trial, go to the ICD-10 Monitor bookstore. Thanks, Clark. And a reminder, if Palooza is coming up, it's the biggest time of the year for ICD-10 Monitor. It's that 10-week period of time when the inpatient prospective payment system final rule is released and continues through October 1st. That's when the regulations, including the ICD-10 codes, are effective. Talk 10 Tuesdays and ICD-10 Monitor will be reporting news and information leading up to the release of the new ICD-10 codes, all designed to help you prepare for a smooth transition. And now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Focus Report, and today's Talk 10 Tuesday Focus Report is about the social determinants of health. The Tuesday Focus Report is brought to you by Change Healthcare, providing technology-enabled revenue integrity services to help you improve efficiency, reduce costs, optimize revenue, and effectively manage complex workflows. Visit changehealthcare.com. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Focus Report is Diane Iverson. The social determinants of health have been an emerging topic for the past few years. However, many are just beginning to figure out how to operationalize collecting the data for coding purposes. A primary starting point is to figure out what screening tools you use. Traditionally, the concentration in medical coding has been on accurately reflecting the severity of illness and risk of mortality, as well as the overall case mix. As financial incentives are changing, healthcare organizations have begun to realize that the best way to get paid is to focus on what makes the community healthy and work with programs and public health policy to create healthy environments and connect people with resources. Considerations include the ability to collect data in a form that is evidence-based and useful in guiding clinical decisions. 
There are several screening tools to choose from depending on what domains are appropriate for the population a healthcare organization serves. This includes the Accountable Health Community Screening Tool, um, Health-Related Social Needs from CMS, Your Current Life Situation by Kaiser, the Prepare Tool by the National Association of Community Health Centers, and several other tools. Workflow is a consideration in deciding on a tool. For example, who will collect the data and where? Apps are evolving so that patients can enter their own social determinants of health in their electronic chart, which is then put into ICD-10 codes that providers can link into their progress notes. With changes in allowing non-professional documentation to be used for coding purposes, the door is open for this information to be collected by frontline staff. Coordination is important with those who build on the basic data by using specialized screening tools from within their specialty. For example, peer-to-peer recovery specialists often utilize standardized tools that find the social roots of addiction issues. Um, Additionally, in appropriate context, social workers screen for trauma by using the traditional Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, also called the ACEs, which has correlates in the Z62 codes. Community service workers help collect data on transportation, food insecurity, housing, and utility issues, among others. Even with the coming ICD-10 codes in the fall, we still have to work um, to do. We still have work to do in making sure we are accurately representing the needs of our patients in medical coding. For example, there's not a code for the lack of a photo ID, which is a barrier to other social services. There's not a code for the elements of the more modern ACEs study, called the Philadelphia Urban ACEs. Nor is there a code for the primary caregiver of a dependent child under 18, which may be useful in finding resources for the patient in the context of the family. There's currently a national collaborative to advance interoperable social risk and protective factors documentation called the Gravity Project. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has funded this partnering with SIREN, which is the University of California, San Francisco's Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network, along with EMI advisors. I encourage all stakeholders to participate. More to come on the Gravity Project from Talk 10 Tuesdays. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Diane. Diane Iverson is a case manager at a major teaching hospital in Baltimore. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Diane. At the top of the broadcast, we mentioned that we're revisiting a hot issue that we reported last year. The question, are coding professionals sufficiently trained and competent to interpret clinical terms and concepts for medical records? We have two reports on this topic. Deb Detton, who first reported the subject last year, is going to be joined by Annie Ewan, who also reported on this issue last August. Here now is Deb Detton. Good morning, Deb. Good morning. Great question, Chuck. Well, my answer to that question is it all depends on the individual person and not the credential alone. If the HIM coding professional possesses the advanced clinical education and training required, and if they're able to pass the CDI exam through either HEMA or ACTUS, they certainly qualify to be in the role of a CDI professional and should not be restricted. There's more to being a CDI specialist than just possessing the clinical acumen, but they also need to possess effective communication tools with all the healthcare providers and the clinical team. They must be able to write and compose compliant queries. They must also have a good understanding of the coding classifications, along with the various payment methodologies. Clinical licensure is not a requirement of a CDI professional. The CDI professional's job is to ensure the integrity of the health record documentation. 
CDI specialists examine the documentation gaps and identify root causes of documentation integrity issues. CDI specialist's role is to facilitate and educate the clinical team on effective communication of the patient's care that will alleviate provider administrative burden, enhance patient outcomes, and also alleviate unnecessary denials. Well, I'm glad to see that in this month's Journal of AHEMA, there are discussions to change the I and ICD or CDI from improvement to integrity. Defining the word integrity can assume different things to different people, but basically it is defined as the practice of being honest and showing a consistent and uncompromising adherence to strong moral and ethical principles and values, which is stated in both ICD-10 or ACTUS and in the HEMA Code of Ethics. Uh, additionally, as on the first page of the ICD-10 official guidelines for coding and reporting states that a joint effort between the healthcare and the provider, the healthcare provider and the coder is essential to achieve complete and accurate documentation, code assignment, and reporting of diagnosis and procedures. The importance of consistent documentation cannot be overemphasized. Without such documentation, accurate coding cannot be achieved. We want the documentation and the codes to be accurately depicting the clinical truth. The patient's clinical story must be accurately told and transcribed. It is the role of both the CDI specialist and coding professional to recognize when there are issues in the documentation that needs further clarification before the bill is sent out. The ICD-10 CM convention in Section 1A19 regarding code assignment and clinical criteria needs to be mentioned here. My experience is that this guideline has been misinterpreted by some people. The guideline should not be interpreted to mean that coding professionals aren't qualified to query for clinical validation when the diagnosis is conflicting, ambiguous, or lacks medical necessity in the medical record. Every coder should know already that they are precluded to make clinical decisions from clinical criteria. Only a physician can diagnose, not a CDI specialist or a coder. So having said that, if there are gaps or questions about a certain diagnosis in the documentation that lacks the completeness, consistency, clarity, reliability, or precision before completing coding, a query should be generated. A classic example, if by the time of discharge the physician or provider hasn't ruled in or ruled out a suspected condition, the coder should definitely query. Only a provider can attest to the validity or non-validity of a diagnosis. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Deb. And that is actually my position as well, is that uh, even though we do clinical validation queries, the only one who actually can do clinical validation is the provider. That was Deborah Beisel Denton. Deb is a HIM system coding educator at Maricopa Integrated Health System. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Deb, thank you very, very much for your reporting. And here now with part two of our lead story is Annie Ewan, who reported on this story last August. Annie, are you seeing any changes on this subject? Thank you for having me on again. And I am happy to report um, that since the last time I was on, I am seeing some positive changes. As Deb mentioned, AHIMA actually um, has been proactive in addressing the issues and bringing it to the forefront. They recently, um, in January, have published a revised practice brief titled Clinical Validation, the Next Level of CDI. Within this practice brief, um, it finally clarifies who can write clinical validation queries. 
per the practice brief, the qualifications of a professional who can send clinical validation queries will vary by setting and organization. Many organizations support both CDI and coding professionals as authors of clinical validation queries. Adequately trained query professionals should not be prevented from writing clinical validation clarification queries based on their credentials and or background. For example, HIM coding background versus a clinical background. I think the key takeaway in that um, quote is really the adequately trained query professionals. Um, and Actus on has also been respectively expressing the same importance of clinical validators' knowledge and not their credentials and backgrounds in their articles. Um, both organizations are really promoting a multidisciplinary team with the understanding that everyone's background and experience would add value to the CDI team. Another thing that I have noticed since August is that some organizations have started to modify their job descriptions to include additional credentials and backgrounds other than nursing. But unfortunately, the subject remains contentious across the industry because it is still impacting a group of qualified candidates from being hired into open positions as CDI professionals. Job postings and recruiter postings on social media often calls out specific candidates with specific verbiage like, to be considered, you need to be a, an RN. This type of verbiage causes many qualified candidates with backgrounds like HIM coding professionals, foreign trained physicians, respiratory therapists, etc., to lose an opportunity to even submit their resume and or even be presented to the hiring manager for consideration, despite their other qualifications that may make them a stellar CDI professional. There are definitely positive changes, but there is still work to be done. Back to you, Erica. Thank you. That was Annie Yuen. Annie is the principal of AP Consulting Associates, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Annie, for that excellent report. And you can read her reporting on this very important subject in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. And now is the time for our very popular segment here at Talk in Tuesday, and that's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what is on your mind this morning? Well, Chuck, before I go into my talk, I'm going to just tell our listeners that we're going to have a few minutes for questions at the end, so if you have any questions about anything you've heard, feel free to type them in so we can answer them. Today, I'm going to talk about observations on how voice recognition can go wrong. Uh, I actually have designed a tip sheet for providers, which you can obtain if you go to my website, icd10md.com, under the free pointers tab. Um, I will also be posting this script at the end of uh, probably today or tomorrow, uh, so you can um, find that uh, website. Uh, the, re the way this all came about was I've been doing a project evaluating emergency department documentation, and many of the emergency providers utilize voice recognition. So illegibility has been replaced by unintelligibility. I am not proposing that providers spend all day generating a single record unless they're doctor house, but they should want their documentation to reflect the excellent care they are providing. If I got a legal notice or read an article which had the kind of issues that some of these documents have, I would question the competency of the author. No one wants to have their medical acumen questioned because of shoddy documentation. Furthermore, no one wants harm to come to a patient because the documentation was not accurate. 
There is no way around this. Providers must read and edit their transcription. Let me share some of the common errors I am, I am seeing, and this is in no particular order of importance. Some errors are not worth correcting, but some are critical, and the provider should be made to edit their document after the fact. When we do publish this, I'm going to give you all sorts of examples of things that I've seen. I see numerical errors. This can be clinically significant if, for instance, a consultant is recommending a co- course of action and a dosage is off by, say, tenfold. I saw a three-year-old woman whose son, the cardiologist, brought her in for evaluation. Sometimes when you're dictating, you stutter or falter. Sometimes when you're reading a script. Uh, And the voice recognition captures a word or a syllable twice, causing a duplication. This is usually not clinically significant, but it does give the appearance of carelessness. This next type of error can be very significant. Voice recognition has become very sophisticated but the technology doesn't understand meaning. It has frequency distributions, so it can predict the correct there, there, or there according to the words that are surrounding it. Sometimes the voice recognition just has no clue where you are going with your dictation, and it inserts whatever it thinks matches. This can result in nonsensical words, phrases, or sentences. A patient in severe respiratory distress leaning forward to catch their breath can be found to occasionally try potting. Or a patient might get three milligrams of blood riding morning, which I think was supposed to be gliburide. Nonsense transcription can cause subsequent caregivers to skip over parts of a note which have substantive information in them because they just can't decipher the meaning. Redundancies and run-on sentences pose the same risk, in my opinion. Important information can get lost in the shuffle, just as it may take more time to curate your uh, dictation to ensure accuracy for you, it may take someone else significantly more time to try to sift through repetitive phrasing to try to glean the meaning, and then they may not even try. Sometimes the errors are entertaining. And it's a personal challenge to figure out where they come from. Tonsil patient on smoking cessation, I believe, comes from counsel patient on smoking cessation. Unusual surnames or local facilities' names may get mangled by untaught voice recognition programs. Alternating programs, uh, sorry, alternating pronouns can be distracting and particularly vexing when the patient's name is gender neutral or foreign. It is acceptable to use they and their as a gender-neutral pronoun now, and I'm making that recommendation. A more serious error type is omission. When you leave a word out or cut a sentence off, vital information may be absent. What procedure exactly was done at the outside hospital? She just, word missing, onto the floor. Did she slide? Did she fall? Inquiring minds want to know. I provide you with some interesting examples of errors which obscure or change the intent of the documentation. A common etiology is losing or inserting a negating word into a sentence, giving a run-on list of pertinent positive and negative symptoms without appropriate punctuation can leave the reader scratching their head as to whether the fifth one was present 
or were you documenting it was not present? Finally, having a disclaimer that says, it's my voice recognition's fault that there are mistakes in this documentation is not an excuse. It is the provider's responsibility to ensure accuracy. And for sure, don't do what I saw one provider do. Their disclaimer said, with their outside voice, that the note had not been proofread before it was signed. So check out my ICD-10 monitor for my full article with examples, which will be posted either later today or tomorrow. And check my website out for a tip for providers at icd10md.com. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Erica, very much. Boy, that was a very interesting segment. We've asked our panelists to stick around for a roundtable discussion on today's Talk Ten Tuesday. We have a couple of questions coming in. Erica, let's take a look at this question and see if you'd like to answer it. How do you side. ensure accountability by professionals when reimbursement appears to drive code assignment? I'm not entirely sure I understand the question, but I can tell you that you need to hold the professionals accountable because I've been talking about voice recognition. So I think that they were talking about that, but I'm wondering if they're talking about actually clinical validation. So in terms of the voice recognition, you need to hold professionals accountable. And, you know, my opinion is when I, as a um, someone reading the documentation or when I was doing CDI in my physician um, advisor capacity, when I would find substantive errors in the documentation, I would actually go back and request for clarification, even though it really has nothing to do with your DRG or anything like that. To me, it's really important that we are clinically communicating to one another. Um, in terms of clinical validation, does somebody else want to take that one on, um, how uh, we can make sure that pro- professionals are um, being held accountable uh, like, for instance, if they are documenting sepsis when it's not clinically valid because somewhere along the line someone has told them we get more reimbursement if the patient has sepsis, so use that instead. How does anybody else want to actually take that one on? Annie? Sure, this is Annie. I definitely can. We do um, have code of ethics with Actus and also AHEMA where it specifically talks about, you know, CDI professional values um, includes honesty, integrity, um, acting in a manner that brings honors to self, peers, and the profession. Um, And, of course, there are specific ethical principles that are outlined, and these um, code of ethics are available on the respective websites. Um, and there are specific outlines that says, you know, we need to um, act in a professional and ethical manner at all times and ensure that, you know, all the um, PHIs, um, reasonable steps, uh, just any of the aspect of holding accountability, I believe is addressed in these code of ethics. Annie, thank you so much because that's because I was really I was reading it from the provider side and I was confused. But you, I think you've got exactly to the to the essence of that question. I think that you know it it can be difficult for CDI professionals because on the one hand they're being told we want everything to be accurate, but on the other hand they do have the revenue cycle people saying you know we want to make sure that we maximize our DRGs and my. Um, advice is it's not a matter of maximizing, it's a matter of optimizing. 
So you need to be, you know, when you were talking about changing improvement, or um, I, I think it might have been you or it might have been Deborah, um, changing the I from improvement to integrity, you know, there's been, in Actus, there's been a lot of discussion about that, but that's, you know, I think that you need to be true to yourself and you need to be doing what's right and it's not necessarily always going to be the thing that brings in the most revenue. Yes, and there's actually a verbiage in there that quotes you, Erica, <laughs> in the Code of Ethics, and it is that clinical documentation improvement professionals shall act with integrity, behave in an honest, trustworthy manner, abide by ethical principles, elevate service to others above self-interest, and promote high standards of practice in every setting. Very good. Thanks. We're going to close on that quote, and we thank you very much, uh, Annie, and we also thank you, Erica, for providing that quote. That's going to be a wrap for our 376 edition of Talked In Tuesday. And Erica and I want to thank our panelists today, Deb Detton, Diane Iverson, Tim Powell, Annie Ewan, who you just heard, and our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to all the Talked In Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher. Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and when you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.